If you're visiting with us, we're in a series six weeks long for the month of December. We cranked it off last week. You can go to the YouTube page and that's all on your QR code there. It'll take you to the messages that are available. We launched out talking all month about Jesus Christ specifically from being an influencer to being a redeemer. An influencer meaning your life never changes but you know everything about him or you've heard about him or you go to church or you're a professing Christian but you've never come to the fact that he's a redeemer and your life has really changed. That we would be able to look at you and say, hey, you're different because of Jesus. And so my prayer over the next five weeks to the end of the year, and I hope I do a good job with it, is to enlighten you to who Jesus Christ is to us and why this is so meaningful to the Christian faith that it would cause you to come into an understanding of Him like never before and it would increase you in such a way that everybody around you would know that you've put your faith in Christ. So that is a daunting task, but that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Let's jump into it today. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we launch out. It's where we started last week. It states this from the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus existed. He said, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. We made mention in depth to this, but I'll hit it one more time this week just to bring us all back to a common place to launch. The challenge of this for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given is if we're not careful, we end up knowing the things about Christmas, a child is born, knowing the things about Easter, a son has been given to us. We know the religion of it. We know the stories maybe. If we're Christian, we go to church, we read Bibles, we may know about Daniel and Moses. But the prophet Isaiah does not stop there because he forces us to go deeper. And my challenge is, it's, it's from the semicolon on where the challenge of being a Christian comes. Because Isaiah will go to say this, and the government. That from the beginning of time, God has been trying to get us into a place of understanding His government over our life. It's not just enough to know a child is born. There's myriads of Christians that know the Christmas story. It's not just enough to know a son is given. There's a lot of professing believers that know about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. But I challenge us all to think, how many people do we really know that come under the government of God? Because the government of God forces us to use words like Lord, King of Kings. He sits in authority over my life. You see, you can talk about a child is born and a son is given, but not be under God's authority at all. This is why Jesus will say even the devils know about him. Paul says even the demons know about him and tremble. This is why the devil, although many people don't, may not espouse this, we think that the Bible scares the devil. Just quote the scripture and the devil will run. But do you know that the devil himself quoted scripture? But the one thing the devil could not come into, he could not come under the government of God. The devil believed in Jesus. He knew who he was. The devils and the demons understood him because when Jesus bumped into the demons, the demons were like, did you come to torment me before it was even my time? But even though they had all the right answers, he was the son of God. Although they knew that they would be tormented, the demons could never come under the government of God. So one of the challenges it faces you today as a Christian is that the devil will deceive us into thinking that just because I know Jesus and love Jesus and know the stories and pray the prayers and read my Bible, I must therefore by nature be a Christian. And the reality is there's going to be a lot of people that know the child and a lot of people that know the stories. But Jesus says, when you stand in front of me, I'll say, I don't even know who you are. Because Jesus' comment is, it's about my government. It's about my lordship over your life. It's about whether I'm the king over your life. If I'm in charge and it's my wisdom that's over you. It's a strange thing because it, it pinches a little bit to the soul because what it says to me is that you, Jesus doesn't serve you, you serve Him. Jesus does not exist to make all of your whims and all of your needs come to pass. He exists for you to come to Him as Lord and Savior. And so Isaiah brings us, and this becomes the challenge. The challenge is that we're to know His government. Listen to what it will go to say in the book of Ephesians because 
this passage of scripture intrigues me. I've meditated it on a while and I've tried to put it together to make sense today for you. It's Ephesians chapter 3 verse 18. Paul says, and may you have the power to understand. And I, I come to that thinking that maybe there's a lot about Jesus people know, but they really don't understand it. We, we, we understand, the, the, you know, get the nice little t-shirt, the little cute little bands that say, what would Jesus do? We sing the songs. We know all the religious things. He said, but what I'm praying for is that you would have the power to understand. And then says, as a matter of fact, this is not just for a few of you. All of God's people should understand something. Every one of us in this room have to understand something. There's an expectation on you, Michael, to understand something. There's an expectation on you, TJ, to understand something. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would have the power to understand this. And then he tells us what that is. That you may know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Jesus is. In other words, if you're not careful, you won't get it just on a superficial note. If I was just to understand his love, I would say, that's easy, he loves me. And Paul says, well, it's a little deeper than that. Okay, well, he loved me and he died for me. Okay, but it's deeper than that. Okay, well, he became a baby so he could become a human, so he could die for me, so he could love me. Oh, I know, but I'm praying you understand it's deeper than that. It's deeper than the stories of the Bible. It's deeper than just some religious tradition called Christmas. And I'm praying that you could understand their, their, what happens when you come to this understanding. And so... It makes me really think about it because this is what Jesus said about how deep his love was. He said, let me help you. Are you all confused as humans? I'm going to sum it all up. Love God and love people. You need anything else, call me later. And that seems so easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength until I realize I'm selfish and can't. I'm going to teach you this in the weeks ahead. Just love people as yourself. Well, I can't love people at my neighbor as myself because I don't even love myself. I don't even like the fact I'm a boy and want to be a girl and you expect me to love other people like I love myself when half of our generation doesn't even love themselves. So this love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is very hard when I'm distracted to everything else in life I love and my neighbor as myself when many of God's own people don't love themselves. I don't love my weight. I don't love my hair. I don't love my body. I don't love my family. I don't love my job. Oh, just go love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we all hate each other. We don't even like ourselves. I meet few people that look in the mirror and go, I like that. We always got to trim a few and suck a few and hold a few. And then you want me to take my energy and love a neighbor? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's all. That, that, that's it. Like, there's nothing else bigger than that. Just God and your neighbor. So go take 2,000 years to figure it out. And then that's why Paul says you have to understand the love because when you do, something happens. Now here's the challenge. The challenge is I'm supposed to understand the love of Jesus. And the issue becomes this. Here's where it gets really sticky. It's Psalm 39. I don't like it, but it's there, so we got to hold it and believe it. Lord, verse 4, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and how fleeting my life is. I don't like that reminder. It gets worse. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. My mother called me last night to intercede for the game. Thank God for an interceding mother. And she said to me, she said, Whew, It's hard to believe Christmas is here again. She said, I just feel like yesterday it was Christmas. She says, when you get my age, you meet yourself coming and going. Come on, how many of you old people know life goes by fast when you're old? 
But that's not just because you got old. What God is trying to give you a revelation is everybody in this room, take your hand and hold it out like this, if you will. I want you to stare at your hand. Everybody, come on, help me out. Hook a brother up. Your hand, look at your hand. Now take a deep breath in and just blow. That's your entire life. In relationship to God, that's the amount of time you get. And if you're not careful, you'll waste that breath. I know you think you have a lot of them. If you're in good shape, you get a few more. But in relationship to God, he said, your life is nothing more than the width of your hand. That's how short it is. And if you really want to know from his perspective, your life is one breath. One breath. If I'm, if I'm not careful, I will view my life from all of my breaths. But when you understand God, when God breathed into Adam and went, <gasps> and gave Adam his, <gasps> and Adam took his first breath in, and Adam got to live on planet Earth, but every human that comes into the planet, you get the breath of God. <gasps> and that first breath will stay with you until the last one. <gasps> and everybody that dies expends that breath. In your mind, it's a lot of them. It's 80 years worth of them. In God's mind, you get the inhale, that's the day you became alive, and you get the exhale, that's the day you enter eternity. And if you're not careful, you'll waste it. You'll waste your breath on everything but God. Now, the challenge of that is I'm to know the love of Jesus, but I have to figure it out in this little breadth of time called my life. I have to understand fully His love in this little window of time that I've been given across ages. From the beginning all the way to the end of what we would measure time. And your little life, I would have made it much smaller, like a little blip, but you wouldn't have seen it. You're a blip on the screen. Many of you will be buried and nobody will remember you. You'll end up being a picture on somebody's mantle. You'll spend your life trying to make something of yourself and two generations later they may talk about you at Christmas if they can remember you. And this little window called your life, Jesus says it's about this wide and it's about this long. But Paul says, don't get too discouraged because what I'm praying in that little window of life is that you would come to understand fully His love for you. That means you've got about 80 years to figure out the love of God. If you get more, praise God. But most of us in the room have about 80 years to figure out how extravagantly God loves me. And that becomes a challenge because I, I'm, I'm, I'm bred to live above the line. It's difficult for me as a human to live below the line and to tap into something deeper than myself. I'm governed to live my feelings and my emotions and my lust. I don't know how to live in a level that's deeper, more spiritual than just lust and pleasures and what I want and what I need. So this little life of mine, it has this little box around it of needs and wants and promises and problems and desires. And all of our little boxes, we all have our little boxes of needs and problems and desires. God, I really need you to get me into college. I really need to pass this test. I really need a raise at my job. I really need, need you to heal me. God, I have a problem. My husband's a jerk. I really need you to fix my husband. I really need you to help me get my car fixed. It's an alternator problem, but you're the God of alternators. Help me out. God, I just need you to get me in college. I need you to give me a husband. I need you to give me a wife. I need you to help me lose weight. I have these desires. I just want to be married. I just want my sister. I just want my mother. I just want my brother. So Paul is praying, I want you to know the love of God. But everything I'm praying is centered around myself. And I never tap into His love. And because I've been given this little window of time, everything I know about Jesus and His love is wrapped up in, will He do these things for me when I ask Him to? 
And if he doesn't answer the need and I'm sick, if he doesn't fix my problems and I have to fix my alternator myself and I don't get the husband I always wanted, then what happens is I become a skeptic. When God doesn't perform for me in my little window of time called life, I judge him and I become skeptical. If he was real, then he would have done this for me. If he was really a God, he would have answered that need. He would have fixed my problems. He would have given me my desires. Why? Because everything I know about God is shallow. Paul is praying, I understand this, and I'm ticked off about this. And so I become a a Christian skeptic. My life has no power. It has no change. I just suddenly, because I become skeptical, because Jesus didn't do it for me, I meet my own needs, fix my own problems, and chase my own desires. They're called habits and addictions. They're called lust. They're called behaviors. And then what I want is I want to live my little skeptical Christian life and get ticked off at Jesus when He doesn't fix my little skeptical life. But then I do want to claim that I love Him because out here in eternity I don't want to get screwed up but I have no power. So then some well-meaning Christian comes along and says, well, the reason your life doesn't work is you don't really know Jesus. And you need to know Jesus. So little Mark decides, well, yeah, I guess I need to know Jesus. So I start studying Jesus and I study all the stories about Him. I study the traditions. I study the religion. I start going to church. I start giving my money. I, I start doing devotions. I start praying but I, I, I see he didn't, Paul didn't pray, I pray you understand the power of prayer. I pray you understand the power of tithing. He said, I pray you fully understand how much Jesus loves you. And so there's a ton of people that know the stories and tradition. I call them scholars. Because they really don't know the love of Jesus. Oh, they can quote you the scriptures. They can tell you everything Jesus says about drinking. They can tell you everything Jesus says about perversion. They can talk to you about all the scriptures, but they've never really known the love of God. How do I know? Because even though they know tons of the Bible, they're still a jerk. Even though they know tons of scripture, there's still something about their life that's broken. Their marriage is broken. They have scriptures hanging on the walls of their home, but their marriage is broken. They tithe, they go to church, they serve, but their life is a shipwreck. Because Paul didn't say, I pray that you know the stories of the Bible. He says, I pray you know the love of Jesus. And so the challenge in this thing called life is we become skeptics and scholars, but we really don't change. I think it would be a fair assessment that this is pretty much religion in its finest. So what I would like to attempt to do over the next five weeks, so it'll take a while. I mean, we're going to be here for five weeks. Like, oh my God. I'll get you, I'll get you out. But I want, I want to focus on the extravagant love of Jesus for you. Because if I could get you to a place to understand fully as Paul prayed, it could shift your life forever. How do I know? Ephesians 3.19. He says, I pray this love that you would experience this love. And then he says something profound. I pray that you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand it fully. He even admits when you try to understand it fully, it's so incredibly big, you, you, you won't even be able to do it. You could literally spend your life doing one thing, just studying the love of Jesus, and you could wear yourself out and still not know the extravagant love He has for us. I find few understand that love that He offers us. But He says when you do experience it, you become complete. You have the fullness of the life and the power of God in you when you experience His love. When you experience His love, you're made complete. I'll share with you a brief story of what I mean by that. That's very personal to me. I grew up in a great home. And I was told to live my life for Jesus and to the best of my ability I did. I read my Bible every day. 
when I was 16, I wasn't out running the streets at 16 years old. I would leave high school and go to church where dad worked. And I would take my guitar out. And for an hour, I would just play my guitar. And I would sing in the spirit. And I would write songs to the Lord. I was terrible at it, but I guess he listened. And then after that, I would, we had a, about a 700-seat sanctuary. I would walk around the sanctuary and I would pray in tongues for over an hour. Praying so much, my throat would hurt. And then after I would pray for an hour, I would get out my Bible and I would quote the Scriptures. I knew my goal was to learn the entire New Testament by heart. A lavish goal that was. But I felt like it could be done. If I would give myself and devote myself to Scripture, I could learn the whole New Testament from memory. And I started doing that. I got through the entire book of Galatians. And I, I started in Galatians and I, I knew all of Galatians from memory. I was excited to move on and keep going, although that took me about an hour a day of quoting just that one book. But I lived godly. I, I was pursuing the Lord. I went to Tulsa. I was hungry for the Lord. I was, as far as a good guy, I was a good dude. I, I loved the Lord. I didn't smoke. I tried it once. I smoked a whole pack and decided to be done. I tried weed once and decided if God would make the room quit spinning, I'd never do it again. But for most of my life, I, I would say if I was checking boxes, I was a godly man. I feel like I loved God. I wanted God to know how much I loved Him. I was passionate that He would know my love. I wanted to spend my life loving God. I was even at the point of thinking, and I, I hate to admit this publicly, but it's just true. I felt so good about myself that I just knew that when Billy Graham died, his mantle would come on my life. Come on, somebody. Mm. Like, I, I, I loved God so much that I knew God was proud to have me on His team. That if God was picking people, He would pick me because I was working hard for Him. I had committed that I would lay my life down for Him and He could count on me and use me and I would give Him all I had. And I was, I'm not saying I was pristine. I'm sure I had my little quirky sinful things, but overall I judged myself as a pretty godly man. But do you know in all of that effort I put forth and all of the preaching and all of the traveling and all of the songs, I think I wrote over 168 songs and all of the prophesying I did, I looked back over my life and wondered if I ever experienced the love of God as He wanted me to know it. Because the way I was living is I wanted God to experience my love for Him. I didn't want Him to call me to experience His love. I wanted Him to experience my love. I wanted Him to be proud of me. I wanted to stand in front of Him and go, well done, good and faithful servant. I wanted that if God was picking 12 more, that He would have come by me and said, Mark, follow me. And I said, yes, I'll leave everything to follow you. I was hungry for that. But I never knew as it hungry I could be to prove how much I loved God and make Him proud that I'd never really arrived to fully understand how much He loved me until something happened. It was December the 31st, 2011, when the pristine, little, holy, godly man that loved the Lord and loved my wife and loved my children and loved Jesus and loved His church and loved His Bible and loved to pray in the Spirit and loved to serve the church, when that little fella fell apart royally. And I sinned a sin that is not even worth mentioning to you. It's terrible, but I did it. And I relegated at that moment that there's no way that God could ever use me again. Because the mark that had worked so hard to make Him proud of me had failed Him. And I was okay with that. I was okay with... He'll never use me again. I told Robin I was never going to preach again. I told her that I didn't think I was going to do church stuff again. And I relegated the reason why is who would follow a failure. Nobody wants to follow a failure. We want to follow successful people. And I said, I even said to her one time in a chat, I said, who would want to follow me? I mean, like, there's nothing inspiring about what I did. That could... 
Like, I, I mean, I don't, I'm going to love Jesus. Like, there we go. I'm going to love Him, and I'm good with that. And so I, I relegated. I'll become a fireman, and I, I went to school. I got all the degrees. I got the fire degree. I got the hazmat degrees. I got all the degrees because, again, I can make God proud. And I can work hard, and, and I'll just be a good husband to Robin, and, and I'll be a good man. And somewhere between December 31st and April of 2011, sitting in this little window of four months of my life is a man that had fell in love with Jesus, but I had never experienced his love. And now that I'm 12 years removed, I'm finding that many people love Jesus, but they've never experienced his love back. Ever. They're constantly guilty, constantly failing, constantly addicted, constantly making excuses for their behavior, constantly just acting like it's all okay because they never want to be confronted fully with His love. And in that moment, to experience a love that's too great to fully understand, Jesus is about to do something in my life that I can say 12 years later, I now feel complete. And it wasn't anything I did. And this is how it happened. One day in April of 2011, I hear these words. Mark, being nobody else was with me, I relegated that must be the voice of God. It resonated so deeply in my soul, I knew it was spiritual. I knew that God, in this, what I perceived to be God, was going to talk to me. And if you've been here a while, you may have heard this story. And I, I said, yes, and then I hear this. Mark, I chose you knowing you would fail. And in that moment, my life changed dramatically. Because I could not fathom that God could love me knowing I would fail. He could love me hoping I don't fail but not love me knowing I would fail. And then to say, I chose you knowing you would fail. I called you to shepherd people knowing you would fail. And if I called you knowing you would fail and you did fail, then I'm still calling you. And in that moment, Mark Evans experienced the love of Jesus. Because I realized I spent years trying to convince him how I loved him and I avoided how much he was loving me. And in that moment, I felt complete. I felt like, wait a minute. He doesn't love me because I read my Bible. He just loves me. He doesn't love me because I go to church or because I tithe or because I pastor. He just loves me. He loves me in the good, the bad, and the ugly. But, but watch... That knowledge of knowing His love is not to keep me being a jerk. It's to move me to a place of completeness. Because you really don't know the love of God until you come to a place to say, in that I find completeness. Because there's a lot of people who know Jesus' love, but their marriages aren't different. They're not a different father. They're not a different mother. They just live very anemic, weak lives because they know the stories of love, but they've never experienced a love that brought them to somewhere that I'm complete and I have the fullness of God in me now. And it makes me want to serve Him because He loves me, not serve Him to prove I love Him. Does that make sense? So in that... I, I started trying to work out how do I know His love when I'm only given a brief amount of time. And so what I've decided to do, thanks to His calling, is to share my life with you of how I've experienced that in what we would call preaching or doing what I do. Because I want to bring you to a place to where you experience it, to where your marriage and your life and your health, you're complete. I'll try to do that here shortly. This is the goal. The goal is to take your life from above the line and bring you into a place to where you learn to live in the love of Jesus. 
not live by needs and problems and whether he answers it or all the stories and whether you can quote the scripture, but whether you've experienced his love. I'll show you how it works and then we'll take five weeks to dig it out, but we'll get started. Jesus says this of himself. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I'm the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So when Jesus says of himself, this is what he says. He says, I'm the one who always was, I'm the one who is now, and I'm the one who is to come. Now the moment Jesus said that, he bookend the entire spectrum of what we call time. I'm the beginning of time, I'm the end of time. I would encourage you to go on your QR code. There is a link at the very top called Genesis. It's 26 lessons on Genesis. encourage you to listen to it. It's deeper than we can do today. But I go into this issue of Jesus in time. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. And I teach in that series that time is not just a linear 24-hour day or 365, but time is a person. And when you know Jesus, time just kind of is not a deal anymore. So I don't live by hope he answers my prayer by noon because that's time. But when I go, oh, he's got my prayer, I'm okay because he is time. He's all of it. Then I'm not looking at my watch to see if he's faithful. You understand that? When I, when I view Jesus within my time, I'll determine whether he's faithful or not. I'll look at my little life and go, well, if he does it for me, he's faithful. But he says, no, you, you can't view me in, in relationship to a calendar and watch. I'm the beginning of it. I'm the end. I'm the first and the last. Time is me. I'm the one that created time. I am the creator of all things. So if you want to know how to serve me in the middle of time, look at me that I govern all of time and you'll never be disappointed. So then when I need him to do it by noon today, and he hasn't done it by noon today, I'm not turning into a skeptic. When he didn't do it by next month, when he hasn't fixed my marriage yet, I'm not a skeptic. How could you say, how could you never become a skeptic? Because I'm not judging him based off my Google calendar and my watch. I'm judging him based off of his own character. And when you judge him off of his own character, throw your watch away. It may take him 4,000 years to get the Son of God from the belly of Eve all the way to the belly of Mary, but you can bank on he's faithful. You can bank on his faithfulness. His faithfulness may not be in the window of your life called time, but he is a faithful God because he's over all of it. So I said this before, there's not one person out here in this little eternal world who's going, I feel ripped off. Every person in the eternal world has gotten a reward of his faithfulness. It's us that are left behind that are ticked and bitter and mad. Because he's, he doesn't fit my Google calendar. He doesn't fit my Apple watch. So what I want to do briefly is I want to take you through the character of Jesus as it bookends this thing called time. Now, without going so deep... We're going to try to bookend it just with your little measly life of a breath. How do you fit this red line of him into this little thing called you? To where it would make sense. How can I do this practically? Well, I'm going to try to run you through it. Here's a scripture. It's in Ephesians. I love that book. We're God's masterpiece. Anybody feel like you're junk in the room? You're his masterpiece. He created you anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things and then in pink that he planned for you a long time ago. Listen, before you ever got on the planet, I said this last week, he already had everything you need in place. Now when Jesus said, I always was, I always have been, that means before Adam and Eve came, Jesus existed. We said that last week. Watch this though. Have you ever thought, why did he make his pinnacle, male and female, at the end of creation? You would think if you're God and they're your image, you would have started with them on day one. And let there be male and female, day one. God pushes the pinnacle of his creation to the final day of day six. 
The greatest thing he would ever create was pushed at the end. Why? Because God wants you to know that everything a human would have needed would have already been here in advance before they ever arrived on the scene. So the moment he creates this little piece of dirt called Adam, and Adam becomes alive, and then he plants Adam into the garden, everything Adam would ever need to be successful was already here. He didn't have to create something. He didn't have to build something. He just had to rest in what had already been created and built for him. Now the problem becomes when I step outside of that, I end up having to create everything for myself. And I become skeptical. Let me walk you through it without keeping you here until Jesus returns. Just a thought. I go into it in depth in the Genesis teaching, but a thought. Day one, he says, let there be light, and there was light, and darkness was dispelled. John chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The reason he started out with light being day one is day one, let there be light. Jesus was the light of the world. In day one, God put himself. Before God ever deals with you, he always defines his character with himself. Day two, he splits the water above with the water below and creates something called the sky. A weird day to create something. But when God created the sky, which seems like, well, that's all he did was make the sky, he was thinking about his covenant. Because that sky is where the rainbow is going to show up to define the covenant that Noah was going to know him by. So in day, day two, with no human on the planet, God's already thinking about Noah. i got to have a way to confirm with Noah that I'm faithful. Let me create the sky and let me put water above and below so we could have a rainbow. So the water above and below of the sky was God prepping for Noah to know his covenant faithfulness. And there was no Noah. Day three, he makes the grass and the trees and the dirt. So on day three, he calls up the earth. Why? Because the earth is going to be where he takes the dirt to make Adam. So he's already thinking about Adam by day three. But because he's thinking about Adam on day three, knowing that Adam would sin, he has to have a way to remedy sin. So he makes the trees on day three so that the very dirt that is going to sin has a tree growing in it because the tree is going to be the thing that redeems the sin because he that is hung on a tree will deliver you from the curse. So he's already thinking... He's already thinking about Jesus now coming thousands of years later. He's already already got the remedy to the curse in a tree on day three, but there's not even a human yet. So day four, he shows up and says, well, let there be sun and the moon and the stars to govern the seasons. Why? Because he knew that there was going to be this little kid in a cradle and there was going to be some wise men to go, well, we saw a star and the star led us right over here to this and we proclaim that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that when he lays out the stars in day four, it's to prep the birth of the Son of the living God. You you think he's just making this stuff up? And then on day five, he decides, well, let me day five, let's have some fun. Let me make fish and birds. Fish and birds? I'm sure the angel's like, fish and birds? You're taking a whole day to make fish and birds? He's like, well, yeah, you guys don't know this yet. There's coming a guy named Jonah, and I'm going to have to have a big old fish for him because he's going to be some rebellious little kid, and I'm going to need that fish. There's going to be a prophet named Elijah. He's going to be ticked off that I'm not taking care of him, so I'm going to use one of those birds, and I'm going to have a bird feed him, and then I'm going to prove a miracle because I'm going to have my son show up and take some of those fish that I created, and he's going to multiply them. It's going to blow people's mind because I'm even thinking about the hungry people on the hillside in day five. You think God is just creating the world by happenstance? Everything he's creating is pushing Jesus. And then he shows up on day six and goes, okay, now the crowning pinnacle. I'm going to have to have more animals. More animals? Well, i got to have more animals because y'all are going to have to kill a lot of them because you're going to be so unholy that you're going to need their blood. So I'm going to have to create the animal that's going to clothe you before you ever get here. So he creates the animals that will become the sacrifice and the animals that will become the clothing before the person ever gets here. But then because God loves you so much, he doesn't get you here and go, there you go, go ahead and screw up, I'm ready. He puts you here and says, look, I've done everything for you, go for it, love it, just do whatever. And then we're the ones that give him the middle finger. But when he created Adam, he was already thinking about Christ. 
I could end here and say, how could you not know how much he loves you? Well, he let me be born into a terrible family. Do you not know in the middle of the hellacious, God-awful, demonic family you live in that God has prepared within himself that you can find completeness in him? Well, if he loved me, he wouldn't have let me be born in this hellacious family. Do you not understand that you were chosen to be born by your god-awful parents that decided to have you that were jerks, but when you got here and went, and took your first breath, God's like, now I can give my extravagant love. And he's trying to pull you out of your miserable life into his extravagant love. So the only people I'm going to let be born on the planet are all the good people with good parents. No, I'm going to let every God-awful human come because my extravagant love is bigger than any hell you all can create for each other. And believe me, we can create hell for each other. And God's like, it's okay, I've already prepared my love. Gets better than that because now we come into the Jesus who is. Hebrews 7, but because Jesus lives forever, there's that bookend of time. He has a priesthood that lasts forever. Therefore, he's able. Come on, somebody. He's able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. I love this. Write this down. Tattoo it on the back of your neck. I was going to say forehead, but that could have been Antichrist. And your mother would be mad at me. (laughs) It says this. He lives forever to intercede with God on your behalf. Look at what he's doing right now. Do you think he's in heaven right now just biting his nails? Sure would wish I could hurry up and go get him. I don't know when daddy's going to have me go down there. Y'all get my horse ready just in case. Do you know what the Bible says about him right now? He's standing at the throne room of God and he's interceding for you right now. He's interceding for your hell. He's interceding for your needs. He's interceding for your sorrows. He's interceding for your sicknesses. He's interceding for your misery. He's interceding for your dream. The Jesus we serve isn't just sitting on a throne with a long beard waiting on something. The Bible says he ever lives to intercede for you. He's praying for you right now. And yet so many people, because they don't know his love, they feel rejected. He doesn't love me. If he did, he would help me. I just feel abandoned. I just feel like an orphan. I feel rejected. I feel like he doesn't answer my prayers. Honey, get over it. You may think he doesn't answer your prayers. He's praying his own prayers for you. Jesus is praying his own prayers for you. Maybe you should tap into that. Oh, Lord, I'm wearing myself out praying. Honey, he's praying for you. You just need to rest in the fact he's the one interceding for you. I don't know who this is for. Somebody here has been bearing the weight of being the intercessor to keep everything together, and you're trying to hold it all together with your prayers. And I felt like the Lord said, let that go and step into his intercession and step into his freedom and step into his power and step into his glory. He knows what you need. He knows what you need. And if you're not careful, you're going to become a skeptic because all of your prayers are just going to be yours instead of his. Feeling like it's on you. Well, let's look at this Jesus. He's also to come. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't you love that Jesus? I'm like, my God, he must have not known 2023. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going there? Look at this. Again, he's not up there just biding his time. He's up there and I don't know, I wish I could get my brain around it. Like there's this place in the unseen realm. We call it heaven. I call it a floating city. But God is there. Your loved ones are there. The angels are there. Worship is there. And he said, oh, y'all think we're just up here singing? I'm preparing something for you, Mark. What does that do for me? He says, look, in Revelation 22, the end of the book, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give every person according to what they've done. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to tap out because it's so hard? Because he said, I'm going to reward you when I come back. I'm going to give you... 
according to what you've done. Are you going to be the according to what I've done is I'm a skeptic and I don't go to church and I don't read my Bible and I'm not in anymore because I don't even know if I trust him. And he takes your little reward and says, eh, I guess I just better put that up. He has a reward waiting on you just for being faithful. Just for trusting him. You, you don't have to end successful. You just have to trust him. And when you trust him, he rewards you. So that, listen, grab this. This is, especially you young folk, this is important. Nothing of human faith is ever a waste. You can't waste your time if you put your faith in him. It'll feel like a waste. It will feel wasteful. Well, I don't know why I go to church, read my Bible, and pray. I mean, it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is you're judging him within this skepticism. Why would somebody still pray that doesn't ever get an answer? Why would somebody still pray for healing and they stay sick? Why would somebody keep trusting Him when He doesn't show up? Because I'm not trusting Him in my little window. I'm trusting Him in His window. So that I may die and not have every prayer answered, but I'll die going, He's faithful. Because I'm not judging Him in my window. I'm judging him across all of time. And he's always faithful. Let's end with this scripture. I'm going to ask Michael to come on up and get ready for communion. Paul says this in Galatians 2. It has long been one of my favorite scriptures. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That was that transition of mine. I, I quoted this from the early 80s. Remember I told you I learned the book of Galatians from memory. I, I knew this in my head. I knew it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ in me. So the life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I could just, I knew it. But I never experienced, I stopped living and I learned to let him live in me. And then it says, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. And I highlighted this for you. You won't trust Him if you don't know how much He loves you. I'm going to teach you over the next several weeks how much He really loves you. Would you stand up with me if you will? I believe it's impossible when you know He's prepared your past He's interceding for your present and He's got your future. I believe it's a lot easier to trust His love. When you know He has you covered past, present, and future. There's nothing of your past that His love cannot handle. There's nothing going on right now His love cannot handle. There's nothing you'll face in the future His love cannot handle. He's just desperately praying that you would fully understand it. If you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for you. I don't know necessarily how. I guess it's why Paul prayed it. I don't know how to make humans experience His love. Maybe that was the desperation of Paul's prayer. I, I just want you to understand it so much, he said. I want you to be awakened to it. I think he knew if you could, your life would shift, your marriage would shift, your, your thoughts, your, your efforts. Because it wouldn't be about you proving something to him, it would be about you understanding who he is for you. And you would desire it all. You would desire to know him, desire to read, desire to worship him, desire to give, desire to pray. Because it would be motivated out of his extravagant love. Heavenly Father, today... I pray as Paul prayed that the eyes of your understanding would be an open believer's church and that you would experience the depth, the width, the height, and the length of God's love for you. I pray, God, if there's anyone here that was as me, whose eyes are blind, whose pride is a little thick, whose arrogance rather reeks, I pray that you enlighten their life as you did mine. I pray that you capture them. I pray, Father, for the 
woman and the man that are praying desperate prayers, wondering where you are, looking at their watches and their calendars. And I pray that you would give us such a love for you that we would love you beyond the calendars and the watches. For the person that's got the prayer, I need you to answer this. And if you will, I know you're real. If you'll answer this one prayer, I'll know you're a powerful God. I pray you would make us so aware of your love that we would not stake your character on one prayer because we know you love us. And if you love us, your goodness abounds. For every... Listen to this. I don't know who this is for. Do you know every day of creation, I think with the exception of one day, every day when God ended what He was doing, He said, it's good. One of the issues of the understanding of God's love is that He's always working toward good. Even in the middle of what you think is hell, He's working something good. As you come to prepare your heart for communion, I pray you focus on the thoughts that have been planted in your soul today. I'm going to bless the communion. If you don't mind, for those of you that are giving, if you'll take your phone, I don't know if you do it on a phone or an envelope or if you've already done it, that's fine. But I also like to just pray over our giving and our communion. So with your hands over your seed that you're planting. Father, before we come to communion, I take a moment to ask you to bless the seeds that are being planted in this offering. It's a human way for us to say thank you. It's a human way to say we trust your love more than we trust our jobs and our own efforts. I pray for every person that's giving, whether it be an offering or a tithe, or that you would bless their businesses back and their marriages back. And that the seed that's sown, the Bible's very clear, you reap what you sow. Let us reap back from the blessings because we've sowed thankfulness today. Because of these seeds, I bless your businesses, I bless your home, I bless your lives. Father, now I bless the communion, the bread and the wine. I pray that as we come and we come to these tables that we take this moment of worship and we just ponder a moment your extravagant love for all of us in the room. May we experience that love like never before. And I give you thanks for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may come for communion. There's four tables available. Make use of all of them if you will. Michael's going to lead you in some worship. Pastor Phil will come at the end and dismiss us.